Welcome to Lost Anchorage, where Crude investigates the mechanisms of crime and violence in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Through research and interviews with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime, I hope to build a better understanding of whether or not Anchorage is, in fact, becoming more dangerous. By the end of this series, I hope to create a portrait of crime in our city, for better or for worse. My name's Alan Barnes, and I'm a professor of justice at the UAA Justice Center. I've been here since 1984, got my PhD from Florida State University in 1983, and I've been uh, teaching justice students now for 35 years here in Anchorage. And you had talked about before the podcast how the students you're teaching now, they become people in law enforcement and judges. Well, I, I can't say they're all becoming judges here, of course, but um, when I first got here in the early 1980s, I would think about uh, maybe a third to 40% of our students were planning on going into law enforcement. And uh, back in those days, you only had to work 15 years and you could retire. So many of my students from those early days have uh, become APD officers and retired and moved on. I'm still there, of course. But many of them also went on to law school, became lawyers here in town or uh, judges around the country, etc. And then uh, the other group of people just kind of blended into the community, and I see them in a wide variety of, of places. So. so in your emails, you told me that as a criminologist, you have a greater focus on why crime happens rather than how much crime happens. I call myself a criminologist, and it turned out that uh, for many, many years, and indeed again, because the only other one, she was on our faculty, she left, but of all of the people in our state who purport to have PhDs in, in uh, this field, I, I'm the only one who graduated from a school of criminology, and so we called ourselves criminologists, uh, graduates of Florida State, where other people have degrees in sociology, political science, criminal justice administration, or on and on and on. And in, in reality, that's really been my focus is on, well, why do people commit crime? That's the, what criminology is all about. Not necessarily how you arrest people or how you treat people or many of the other uh, issues, which are very important. I'm not dismissing that, of course. Uh, the social features, drug use, etc. But specifically on why do people commit crime? And boy, that's a very broad topic for sure, Cody. I guess maybe looking at Anchorage, I mean, is there a, a common thread in the crimes that people commit here or does it fluctuate? Alcohol. Uh, some years ago, the federal government stopped funding it, and so we stopped doing it. Uh, but the state was involved in something called the Adam Project, or at least Anchorage was. I, I, don't, I, I should only say Anchorage was. It was the um, Advanced Drug 
uh, abuse monitoring. That's what Adam stood for. So everybody who was arrested, nah, I just I shouldn't say everybody because that's not true either. But a, a large percentage, and certainly this was all done scientifically, and I, I don't want to spend the time to discuss that either, but the people who were arrested, and 90% of those were males, in and taken to the Anchorage Dale there on 3rd Avenue, or actually it might even have been down when they were on in downtown. They were interviewed about their substance abuse. They were uh, dis discussed all that, etc. And then they were asked to actually pee in a bottle to verify what they had said, right? And oh my goodness, I recall that was somewhere like 90% of every arrestee had alcohol. Now, they might have also had marijuana or PCP or, you know, some other minor things, but uh, the vast majority were just drunk, as it turns out. And not that we're talking about the rest of the state, but my goodness, uh, in, in talking to police officials around the state, right, sometimes they don't even arrest anybody who's not just completely drunk. So alcohol is our, one of our major, major issues here. We see that in our DUIs uh, for sure, right? Is the crime that it's committed, is it usually out of desperation or is it livelihood? Well, when we talk about drug crime, we actually have, it's more complicated than that. There is the crime that's caused by the drug. So if you're, say, a drunk, well, you might get into a fight, drunken fight, brawl at Chilkoot Charlie's parking lot, you know, that kind of thing. Um, then there is the crime that's due to trying to get the drug. So let's go to heroin, for example. People who are on heroin, I don't know if you know of people who are shooting up, but they tend to put on sunglasses and lay down and enjoy whatever that high is. And if they walk around, it's because they're hungry, thirsty, and want to go to the bathroom. But, you know, while they're doing the heroin and having that high, they're probably not committing any crime. But let the, the high wear off and the addiction come back, the urges, we'll call them, right? Uh, then finding the money for the next high becomes the secondary thing I was talking about. So there's the crime of the drug that... Uh, and PCP would be another prime example where people on PCP, they're doing all kinds of crazy crap, right? Or angel dust or whatever. Right? Uh, but uh, then there are those people who do crime to get the drug, the money for the drug. And so we often hear of heroin addicts having a $100 a day, $200 a day, $500 a day habit, right? And then the, the last one is the crime of just possession, sale, manufacture, transportation, on and on and on, that has nothing to do with individual use per se, right? So those are the three areas where we talk about drug crime, and we often don't separate those out very well in our discussions, just like we don't do when we look at our police reports and we see uh, X number of people were arrested for drugs and alcohol driving, you know, or something like that. Well, you know, that's probably 95% alcohol and only 5% all the other drugs, right? Uh, but unless we can separate those out a little clearer, it's difficult to, to make that kind of uh, 
broad judgment that I just made, right? I'm just basing that on historical, anecdotal kinds of information that we've gotten over the last 35 years, right? But we need better uh, data acquisition so that we can understand the problem. And once you understand the problem, uh, it may not make the solution any more obvious, but at least it might tell you, well, that's a solution to not a problem, if you see what I'm trying to suggest here, right? So uh, that's uh, something that is available in, for the police department, and that's called, I'm, I'm kind of going far afield here, but it's called the, the NIBRS program, which is the National Incident-Based Reporting System. Very detailed about the incident and the people who were there and the victim and the time of day and the drug use or whatever, right? Where the uniform crime reports, which is what we see in the newspapers, that, that's the old way of doing things that's almost 100 years old. It began in 1930. So we're pushing 90 years of using this very archaic, simplistic method of understanding how much crime there is. And I'm not dismissing that as a, is not useful because it does tell us what the trends in, say, uh, automobile theft and murder and assaults and, you know, whatever. But the NIBRS provides us with a cleaner, clearer picture, not necessarily cleaner, but a clearer picture of the event and the people who participated in that event, both the victim and the uh, offender. So that kind of thing, I think, would uh, help us dramatically and uh, kind of understand what the crime picture is in Anchorage. But when we only see murder rate, assault rate, burglary rate, or whatever, uh, kind of gets all lumped together. Yeah. You know, you're, you're talking about kind of broad statistics or general statistics versus specific statistics, right? And then what we can glean from from those facts in a way that is more beneficial to the community rather than saying like, oh, crime rate has gone up. Like what types of crime have gone up, right? Well, let's suppose if we took this to another level and we said, oh, the amount of fish uh, caught in Alaska is going up or down. Well, people might say, well, are we talking king salmon here? Are we talking what, you know? And we, you'd want to know, right? We spend more time, energy, and money counting fish on the Kenai than we do trying to understand crime. Now, we, we try to prosecute it, catch it, incarcerate, et cetera. That takes a lot of money, and I'm not dismissing that. But in terms of understanding the fish passing the, the weir kind of thing, the counter, we don't have any of that kind of pre-forecasting uh, that's uh, available to us because we that, that Adam project died almost 20 years ago. So we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Do you know why that is? Yes. Uh, and I'm, I, I know some of your listeners, some of them are probably not going to appreciate this, but as long as we think that every crime is a free will crime, that everybody, all you got to do is just beat the crap out of them and they'll stop doing it. As long as we have that attitude, you don't need to monitor you don't need to count. You don't need to treat. You don't need to do anything. You just catch them, beat the crap out of them, and that ends the problem, right? And that has never worked in any place, not just Alaska, in no place where that has worked. Yes, you can incarcerate people up the yin-yang until you realize, wait a minute, 
the recidivism rate keeps going up and up and up the more people you try to stuff in prison. So not only are you putting them in prison, hopefully to reduce the crime rate, which didn't, because offenders don't think they're going to get caught. I could talk about that in a moment, but uh, then you put them in prison and the recidivism rate is, you know, 60, 80% somewhere. Nope, that ballpark. So now you've got those people that you've got to reincarcerate. So it's just never going to work. It's a revolving door. A revolving door, exactly right. Well, then people say, well, we need to keep them in longer. Well, then how many prisons are you going to build at fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars $75,000 an inmate, right? Uh, eventually that just collapses on itself and you've got to eat your education budget and your road budget and your other budgets, you know, to keep paying for that when that wasn't even going to work anyway. So it's kind of self-defeating prophecy that lets us beat people up and that will keep people from committing crime. In fact, it, in interviewing inmates for years and years and years, those, those people were the most mistreated, beat up people. I mean, if punishment and being beat was enough to make you a good person, then they should be choir boys and saints and, you know, whatever. But that's not the case. They're, they're the worst, as it turns out. Well, we've seen that with childhood development, right? Like that, sure. <laughs> you know, you can't punish uh, a child into submission. That's right. And that works as a teenager. It works as a young adult. works as an old adult, too, right? Now, eventually, uh, if the older you get, the less crime you do. So, Cody, you're probably maxing out your your crime rating, as it turns out, because you're probably <laughs> in your mid-20s, I suspect, right? Early 30s. Oh, well, then you've passed it then. Anybody over 30, they're, they're on the downhill. I made it. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> your chances of staying out of prison have just gone up dramatically. But if you're, say, from 16 to 24, well, those are the peak years for all kinds of crime, right? So the older you get, the less crime you do. And is that a function of being tied to the community. That's one theory of this. Is it a matter of uh, your your hormones start decreasing dramatically after you hit 20, 21? Cody, hate to tell you. Uh, but <laughs> I'm on a decline. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I could tell you about decline here. And uh, so, you know, there are all kinds of biological things, sociological things, environmental things that uh, change as you get older and older. Um, like when you're 20, well, what do you do on Friday and Saturday night? But you leave the house at 10 o'clock, go down to Chilkoots or whatever, and you stay out till bar closing and, you know, then drive around and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, when you're 28 and married, you don't even do that anymore, right? And Or if you are, that's a separate kind of problem, right? But, you know, you're home, you're tied to your family, you're doing the stuff, and okay. So it, it just all kinds of factors factor into age, reducing the amount of crime that, that people do. But there are some people who continue to commit crime, you know, well into their 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? And, and those are the more difficult ones to try to explain. Uh, if, if almost everybody stopped doing crime at age 30, you'd just try to look at well, is it hormones, you know, or something, some biological phenomena that changed over the course of your, you know, life? And, and indeed, that probably explains, for me, a, a large hunk of crime. But why do some people continue to commit crime? That gets more complex, I think. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of prevention, too, by the way. I think 
an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And in particularly, if you think the only cure is just beat the crap out of them and that they won't do it again, that just doesn't, that just doesn't, that flies in the face of reality, as it turns out. You know, I kind of want to get back to something you just said, which is that it is a, a piece of your biology that lends to criminality. Sure. What does that mean? Well, um, uh, there's something called ACEs, which is uh, adverse childhood experiences. And there's a little scale. In fact, we've had workshops on it. It's very popular, and you can Google that if you wanted to see the actual uh, listings. But there are nine of these adverse childhood experiences, death of a parent, um, or divorce, uh, injuries, and, and stuff like that. So anyway, there are nine of those. And the more of those that you have, the greater the probability that you will be a disruptive elementary school kid, that maybe you'll start getting in trouble in junior high, and or you'll become a delinquent. And then if you have like all nine of them, uh, wow, you're, you know, you're headed to the adult prison system for sure. So what is it about these early childhood experiences that seems to predict uh, later criminality or antisocial behavior or just being a, a crappy person, you know? Well, it turns out that uh, those traumas uh, have uh, and stress have demonstrable impacts on your brain. So uh, brain damage, which you, we don't even look at in our, any of our kids, right? Um, but stress causes changes to uh, your indoctrine system and your ability to, your, your mental capacity to process information changes over time with constant stress. So, and stress being poverty for one thing, right? And that's why we see so many crime, uh, crimes happening within the poorer communities it's not that poor people all by themselves are just naturally criminogenic, right? But uh, they're under a tremendous amount of stress that uh, people in the upper classes, middle classes, and above never experience. So where's our next meal coming from? I'm, we're, you're eating poor. You're the, the medical care is bad. You, you know, your car broke down. Now you're going to lose your job because, and your kids can't, you know, on and on and on and on. So stress is a well-recognized uh, problem for all kinds of problems in society, including your just general health, too. The other thing that we're discovering, and this is not necessarily new, but now we're beginning to see the data to point this out, is that the income gap, income gap has always been a predictor of criminality in a community of sorts. So in, in those areas where the, the income gap is fairly narrow, well, there's, there's not very much crime. Even if the demographics in another community are relatively similar, but for some reason the income gap between those at the higher end of the community and those at the lower end, if that gets wider and wider and wider, other things being equal, one can see an increase in crime. And one of the things we're seeing here, uh, certainly in the last few years anyway, has been a widening of this income gap. In fact, just look at the daily news and you see this tremendous changes in the upper echelons of our society in terms of that 1%, the 5%, the 10%. 
Uh, Can you explain it, that a little bit as, as far as uh, how the daily news figures into that? You were talking about the reporting? Well, not necessarily the reporting, but they are reporting that the income gap is getting wider. Um, in fact, the article about the trillion-dollar deficits that we're going to be racking up here, well, eventually you can't keep doing that. I mean, that's – in fact, we in this state, we have all these fiscal conservatives, right? I'm a fiscal conservative. In fact, that's how they get votes is to tell people they're fiscal conservatives. But yet we see uh, Trump proposing budgets that are adding a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars. And another and another and another and another, and that's unsustainable. I mean, you don't have to be some kind of an economist to recognize that, right? But yet, where are these fiscal conservatives? Where are they? I don't know. Uh, you know, they, I, it, it, it mystifies me in some ways that we see that. But the income gap, I think, is, is probably what I'm trying to describe here. And uh, Trump's tax break for the middle class was anything but. What did you get? A cup of coffee? All right. They got millions. See the difference? And even under Bush Jr. in, what I think, 2003, I think, or so, he also provided the greatest tax cut to the rich ever. In fact, at the time, go back and look, the tax cut that Bush did in the early 2000s was greater than all of the tax cuts up to that point. And then Trump adds on to that, right? Well, that's unsustainable. Even Ronald Reagan's tax uh, schedule for the rich, why conservatives would be apoplectic if they saw that today, right? Well, Ronald Reagan reduced it to whatever they find apoplectic, right? But that keeps the income gap somewhat in check. And maybe that's why... Crime rates started going down in about 1992. They kind of dropped off the table and have generally been going down ever since. But in general or here in Alaska? Well, in general, even in Alaska. But uh, Alaska is kind of a small state. And boy, small fluctuations in the amount of crime. Uh, and you, you, the rate jumps around. So you have to kind of look at fairly long trends to see that. And so property crime has been dropping. Um, some violent crime, though, has been going up in the last, say, 10, 12, 15 years. But it fluctuates. So if you, you know, look at the data, it jumps all around, but the trend seems to be up. Well, why is that going against the trend, say, in the rest of the United States, where it tends to be going down? Rape rate, for instance. In the 60s, our rape rate was right in the middle of the country. But now we're the number one rape, rape capital of the world here, you know, and um, murder and violence and stuff. We're pretty much at the top right now. But if we look at the data, well, it jumps all around and maybe in next year we'll, we won't be. Do we have any understanding why that is, that those rates are so high compared to the rest of the nation? Well, back in the, in the 80s, there were big... Uh, statewide pushes to report child sex abuse, for example, and to rape and many other of these uh, personal uh, domestic violence even. Now, it's taken a while for domestic violence to kind of catch up from that. But I think when there's a community statewide 
recognition of the problem and we see television advertisements and uh, channel two, channel 11, channel 13 uh, documentaries on these problems. I, I, I think we increase the amount of reporting that you get. Now, does that explain why we're the number one rape capital of the world? Probably not. But uh, I, I mentioned alcohol earlier in our the conversation here, and alcohol is part of that problem as well. So as a criminologist, you try to get into the mind of the criminal. Is, is that fair to say? That, it's maybe too specific okay. uh, because a, a criminologist would try to study the, what causes the crime, and sometimes those causes aren't necessarily within the, the mind of that person. Uh, they maybe aren't suffering brain damage and uh, high stress or whatever. But there are certain environmental uh, issues that generate crime as well. And I mentioned the income gap. I, we don't understand why the income gap should cause crime in a community. Is it as simple as it just causes discontent and, and jealousy with somebody who has more? Well, you've just jumped into the whole pot, boiling pot of theories here, right? Uh, well, <laughs> once you see, remember I said, once you see what the problem is, right, you can... Uh, now say, well, this must be the reason for that particular problem. Well, it's not the reason for that, but it is the reason for this, right? Well, I, you know, we haven't we we have we haven't even got to the point where we have a very clear picture, much less <laughs> jumped in and says, oh, here's the cause of this particular type of crime. For instance, we in the last few years we've said, um, well, crime is going up, right? So it must be SB ninety one. Well. It was going up in 19, or 2013, 2011. So how in the world, when SB 91 didn't even take effect in what, till 17 maybe, last year? You know, that is just the disconnect there from that. But people want to say, oh, crime's going up. We have SB 91. It must be the problem, right? And I, I, I could talk about the functions of a theory very briefly if you'd want me to jump into that real quick. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I just read an article from a, our, our, one of our major criminology publications, and it was about time order and the three things you need to demonstrate causality. And I've been teaching my students this for 35 years. First thing, you got to do these three things or you can't say there's causality. The first one is a time order problem. A has to come before B. If you're going to say A causes B, then damn it, A had better come before B. And also, you shouldn't have B and then A. I mean, that could happen too. You could always, when you have A, you always get B. Okay. But what happens if you have B? Do you always get A? I mean, you know. Do you, you have get, an example? Um, yes. Divorce rates and juvenile delinquency. For almost my entire academic and half of my professional life, divorce was a traumatic event that, uh, led to juvenile delinquency. And then some people started looking at this a little closer, analyzing this data a little bit better, getting more detailed information, and they came up with the uh, idea and with the data to support this that the juvenile delinquent actually occurred prior to the divorce and was a 
feature of the family breakup. So in that case, the B, juvenile delinquency, was already occurring when the family finally broke up. So wait a minute, that's just the opposite that we think of, right? Well, now, is that in every case? Well, no, but here's the problem. If you can get B and then get A, then don't tell me A causes B, right? That just, that's not going to play out. Okay. So time order is a real, is, is generally we just look at it and we logically use our biases and our personal experiences and we say, oh yeah, A comes before B without ever really having an analysis of that at any level. And admittedly, we can't go through life doing an analysis every little thinky time you say, oh, drunk driving causes death, you know, okay. Probably death does not come <laughs> before drunk driving. So yeah, that's probably true. Uh, but the second thing is you have to have a relationship between these two variables. So if A goes up, you should see some change in B. Or did B stay the same? Well, that can't be, it can't be tied together if changes in A aren't related to changes in B. So, well, well that's, that doesn't make sense. If you get more of A, you should see something change in B. If you get more arrest, you should see crime go down. If you have... Um, more drugs, you should see crime go up. I mean, you know, those kinds of relationships. And, and indeed, that doesn't make it causality because correlation is not causality. But damn it, it, if there's going to be a causal relationship, then you're going to have to see at least a relationship between them. And if you think about it, if you change uh, uh, if B is all over the place and A never changes, well, wait a minute. Why did B go up or down? A didn't change. Oh, okay. Or if A is changing dramatically and B stays the same, you go, well, oh, I don't know. That didn't work. The last one is the most difficult, the third one. And on that one, you have to kind of look and, and this takes, this is where the science really comes in. You have to eliminate all of the other reasonable causal factors. And that was part of my discussion in the beginning, that we don't have enough specific data to know, well, look, uh, in fact, some of the, the data I brought with me, uh, when we look at uh, murders, the, the overall number of murders are going down, but the, the percentage of murders going up by guns, is that, that went up. So maybe 50 years ago, there were lots of murders, it might have even been more murders, but now the murder rate is down, but the number, the percentage of those people being killed by handguns has gone up dramatically, right? Okay. Well, until you capture that kind of uh, specificity, well, you just don't, you can't make those kinds of uh, statements, right? And I think that's where we're, where we're kind of headed, that we need to think about, well, what other reasonable explanations could there be? And that opens it up to people uh, listening to your podcast to say, well, I think it is. Or I, we, you know, it's this or that or the other. And, and admittedly, that they could be absolutely right about that. But if you don't have the data to demonstrate time order, relationship, and maybe control for those kinds of things, right? And I, I mentioned the income gap, and I, I did a little rival causal factor thing in there. I said, <clears throat> in communities where the demographics are the same. So age, race, sex, education level, employment rates, on and on and on. But if the income gap is narrower, 
you have less crime. Then take that exact same demographic over to a, another community where the income gap is much, much, much higher and you see more crime. So that's why we, we tend to think the income gap somehow or another is causally related to that uh, in some fashion. But what's the mechanism behind all of that? That's not, you know, you can predict, but that's necessary you can explain. It seems like we've been kind of poking holes in like, well, this doesn't lead to that. So how do we determine how to curb criminality, I guess, is, is the question. Well, we're, we're not necessarily, you know, in the deep woods wandering around and have no clues. When we see relationships, then that generally says, oh, uh, drug use goes up. Well, we do see a rise in crime. Here in the last few years, we've attributed the rise, say, in auto theft and um, thefts in general to uh, the opioid epidemic, right? So, okay, people recognize an increase in opioid use and arrest and a few things. And, uh, and wow, uh, when we catch some of these people, they have drugs and needles. And so you kind of put this together and you kind of you come up with an idea, we call those theories, right? You come up with a theory that, aha, it's the drug use that's causing people. Remember I said there's the crime doing the drug, the crime getting the money for the drug, and there's the crime of being arrested for all those other things associated with it, right? So maybe here are people, if you're on heroin or some of these other, you're not stealing cars because you just don't can't steal a car. You're, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're just wandering around, you know, but... You need a fix, and you'll run out at three in the morning and 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 check car doorknobs to see if there's any of them open, right? See if you can get a few bucks. Run down to the your drug dealer and get a few hits, right? Uh, okay, so I, there is some relationship perhaps with that that makes some sense. And but the question is, well, why are people using these drugs? Why does it cost so much that you have to go steal to buy these drugs? I teach classes in comparative justice systems. And so uh, there are other countries, and we always hear about Denmark, or, or that's a, in the Netherlands, those two places, where heroin and all of these drugs are really cheap. I mean, my goodness, uh, there's, there's no expense in taking poppies and turning that into heroin or morphine or whatever. Opium kind of just grows. It's, it wouldn't be very expensive. So anyway, they have places where addicts can go and get uh, their opium or heroin or morphine, whatever they're addicted to, uh, kind of like in state-run alcohol shops, right? Okay. <laughs> and they get clean needles. And, and, and so as a result, the kind of street robberies, street crime and whatever uh, is generally reduced to selling tourists fake drugs, as it turns out. So, but <laughs> instead of you know robbing the tourists, they just sell them drugs that they say, "Oh, you want some heroin? You want some morphine? You want some of these drugs? Here, you know, cheap. I can sell to you cheap." <laughs> turns out to be anything but right. But okay, so that's a crime, fraud. But it's not the kind of crime that we experience when people get robbed, beat up, have their car stolen, etc. So. Is that something that we could do here in Alaska? Oh, my goodness. Uh, now you're crazy talk here, Cody. Uh, can you imagine uh, opening up a 
free clinic for heroin users and giving them free needles and all the heroin they want and, you know, on and on. Uh, there are just too many people who believe in the let's just beat them up and they'll stop doing it, right? So until we can kind of overcome that mentality, then none of these other uh, alternatives are, are going to be very useful, I don't think. Can we look to other countries and see that it's working there? And and us being logical beings, you know, look at that and say, we want that for our community. I, but my first answer is yes, of course. But just as states are different, I mean, certainly Alaska is a different kind of state. It is not New York. It is not Louisiana. It's not even Texas even for that matter, right? But many states are different from other states. But we certainly are unique and different. I will admit that. And it is part of what we have to live with, I guess. It's we're so spread out. We don't have a large tax base as our current budget uh, <laughs> crisis has demonstrated here. And we have people who don't want to be taxed. They just want to get money and don't want to have to pay money. And in some ways, you can come to Alaska and get money and never have to pay money. Wow, what such a deal, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why our population is pushing 800,000. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but well, it's probably gone down now that I think about the recession. But yeah. let's say over 700,000, 750,000, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. So I think when I first moved up here, we were probably a little over 500,000. So a lot of people have moved here. Well, that's good. But wait, why don't we tax these people, right? Uh, that would be, why don't we tax tourists? Boy, our tourism has just, and I'm getting way off the, the mark here, and I'm opening up cans of worms, but why not have a summer sales tax just to get those damn tourists and gouge them for 5%, you know? Come on. And they're downtown Anchorage buying souvenirs and stuff. Well, you know, 5%, I don't know if you've been traveling around the United States, but I don't think I've ever paid less than 7 or 8%. Some states, it's 10% tax, mm -hmm. for God's sakes, right? So, you know, they would probably say, oh, my God, it's only 5%. <laughs> They'd be stoked on it. I'll buy extra, you know, if yeah. that kind of rate. So I, I, I think we don't have a lot of, I don't want to say mentality. We don't have a lot of, of uh, boy, I, I hate to use pejorative words. I just don't want to do that. But... We, we just don't have the wherewithal to say, well, let's try these new things. And uh, let's try treatment, for example. Well, treatment costs money. We'll make them pay for it. Well, in many ways, we do. If you've ever had a DUI, did you ever have a DUI, Cody? I have not, no. Well, if you do, you, you've got to go through alcohol treatment, right? And you have to pay for that. Uh, you actually have to pay for your time in jail, too, by the way, and they charge you by the day to go to jail, which okay. I find absolutely ridiculous. We're the only, I think, the only country in the world, and I might be wrong, and, and we've only been doing this for a short time as well, where when it, it used to be when you got arrested, the, it was the state's responsibility to hold you, right? Well, now we arrest you, and maybe, and now you pay for being arrested. Well, maybe that increases the number of people who get arrested if everybody knows that if we arrest more people, well, they'll just pay for their own justice system, right? Mm -hmm. So a DUI, my goodness, you're paying for treatment. You've you got to pay for your monitoring on your car. 
you've got to pay the prosecutor just to look at your record so you can get your car out of hock. Oh, and that's the other thing. All of these cars get towed, so you got to pay for that. Pay and nickel and dime you. Oh, my God. It, it, it's just – I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think th that is outrageous and unconstitutional. I'm going to go that far. And if nothing else, it's immoral. And we're beginning to now see, and I, I saw just some articles just in the last month, about how poor people are actually being victimized again and again and again and again not by the fine that they have to pay in the courtroom, but all the other fines and fees and all the other things that go with that. It, it's just, uh, the rich don't have to worry about that. But if you don't have enough money to live on week to week, whatever, well, yeah, you did it, you got caught, but now you're you're unemployed because your car is gone, right? So anyway. You know, you, you've brought this up before in this conversation, but it's the discrepancy between how people with money view people um, that maybe don't have as much money. What does that perception do to a society? I, I'm afraid we don't have good enough information to, for me to say definitively. Or So what I'm about to say is probably just an educated guess. All right, <laughs> from a ivory tower pinhead professor, right, who hasn't been on the streets in quite some time, but probably you you might experience some of the. They can get away with it. Think if you're poor, they can get away with that and get a slap on the wrist. So, I'm going to get my little share. I'm going to shoplift. I'm going to steal something. I'm going to burgle something. And indeed, those little crimes that I just mentioned, well, you could spend quite a bit of time in jail, right? And yet, when we look at, and this used to be worse. It has gotten a little better. But my goodness, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, these corporate executives were causing millions of dollars of pain and suffering, right? And I'm thinking of, the savings and loan debacle of, and boy, I I can't think of the guy who caused that, right? Well, how much time did he spend in jail? You know, a couple of years maybe, max. And and here a guy, you know, steals something or whatever, he might spend as much time for, you know, 500 bucks that he wound up getting out of the deal, right? So I... I I'm not trying to say that's the only reason here, because I've already painted that there's a lot of reasons for all this stuff. But you ask about the income gap specifically, and so I'm just trying to suggest explanations for that. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like if your brother got away with it, why can't you? Mm -hmm. So you try it and you get caught, you know, kind of thing. But if your brother keeps getting away with it and away with it, you might keep trying it and trying it and trying it. So I think that contributes to this, this idea. Whether that's the only reason here, uh, I don't know. The other thing I, I wanted to point out was I, it's just maybe frustration. Uh, people at the top aren't as frustrated, maybe they're not as happy in some ways, right? But I'm talking frustrated with their ability to feed their family, to pay the insurance, to get health care, to let their kid be uh, to join 
the high school football team, which costs money nowadays, right? My goodness, when I was in high school, you wanted to go out with the football team. If you made the team, you got all this stuff. You know, Not anymore. Costs the parents a lot of money if you want your kid to engage in those things. Well, those things, uh, you can now get scholarships to Yale and USC and Harvard and whatnot because you're a, an athlete, right? Well, you might be very bright, but your parents could never afford, and you could have been a very good football, basketball, whatever player, but your parents couldn't afford that, right? So that reduces your chances. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that you're being, boy, I even hate to use this word, kind of discriminated against by your economic situation, right? Because it's turned into more of a pay-to-play game. Absolutely. Before 1965, it was probably a well-known feature of large Ivy League schools that if your dad was a famous lawyer, doctor, physicist, or whatever, and came from that school, well, they could go talk to the admissions people and you could get right in. Or if that wasn't the case, (laughs) and I'm thinking some of the Kennedys may have benefited from this as well, you know, your dad just contributes a million dollars to whatever. Oh, and then suddenly, you know, it, it opens up to you. So I think after 65, and I'm just being general here, these Ivy League schools tried to be more inclusive. Uh, Harvard touts now that they have um, students from all 50 states and around the world, you know, and a lot of those people need scholarships and whatever, right? But uh, I think prior to that, they were perfectly happy to only have rich kids going to their schools, right? So we got they all paid their own way, I might point out. So. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about different types of crimes. Uh, what do the types of crimes say about a community like Alaska or Anchorage specifically? Well, I, I kind of alluded to the, our high rape rate, perhaps having alcohol-related in fact, I'm sure it is. I think everybody would probably agree to that. But how much does the opioid crisis contribute here? Seems like a lot. Um, but we don't do that Adam project I talked about. So we don't monitor their drug use and whatever uh, when we arrest them for stealing cars or shoplifting or whatever, right? We just say, oh, there were drugs. And we go, oh, they're drug users, right? Okay. So... Much crime, and not all crime, but much crime has an economic quality to it. So obviously stealing things, you don't generally steal stuff and take it home and play with it. You know, I mean, you sell it, right? So a lot of crime is economic crime, and that's why we see property crime way up into the the rates are like 1,500 per 100,000 people here in Alaska. Right now? Yeah, yeah, in that ballpark. I'm being general here without looking at the actual numbers. Okay. But, but if we look at, say, the violent crime rate, well, that's down at, say, 500. Well, that's a third. Right? And then if we look at murder rate, it's only 20 per 100,000. So, mm-hmm. wow, you know. So, you know, it's difficult to, to make a lot of blanket statements uh, about this kind of thing, but alcohol is so prevalent that it feeds into a lot of these other crimes. As we knew, Faye, in the early 2000s, when we were doing that kind of uh, research, the people coming in were using alcohol, uh, maybe heroin, 
But then there was a spike in spikes. Remember spice? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that peaked. You can even see that in the in the data. Boom. Basalts. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And then for some reason, boom, that disappeared. Maybe because we arrested the dealers of these things, right? And then, uh, well, I think it got outlawed as well because those were designer oh, drugs. Oh, sure, sure. And, and we we've always had the problem of of the chemists there in the basements of various places, you know, changing the formularies to make them legal again, and then mm-hmm. okay, have another problem. But for whatever reason, that seems to be going down dramatically in say the more traditional heroin things. But let me just point out that. Boy, I'm going to say in the early 2000s, and, and I'm sorry if I, I can't remember the exact date, but I was working with Dennis Fisher, who was also a, a professor at UAA, and he and I worked on a number of projects, and one of them was a, a needle exchange project for HIV users, right? That was the focus. And looking at that whole arena, because you had to have a place to do the needle exchange, right? Well, who does that? Well, heroin users cocaine injectors, you know? And in talking to the people who ran that facility, um, when we were talking about illegal drugs and, you know, crime rates, whatever, and they said, well, you'd be surprised that the percentage of heroin users in this city that maintain week, yeah, they do it recreationally. Friday night, Saturday night, they get it on. Kind of like in Pulp Fiction, where the guy goes on a date Shoots up and then goes on the okay. Um, so they're regular folks. They're just they're your well, they're your neighbor. Yeah, probably even more regular. He, he didn't want to tell me names, of course. That would be, but bankers, clergy, teachers, owners of businesses, dock workers, you know, on down. So kind of a cross section. But even if you're only a recreational heroin user, you still need, you know, some money to keep your habit going over over some period of years. And that was what he was trying to describe to me, is that the idea that you get hooked on heroin and, you know, and a month later you're in a gutter stealing, raping, killing, you know, whatever. And he said, well, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of normal, regular people in Anchorage who've been using heroin for 20 years and... A doesn't lead to B. That's right. A doesn't cause B. Glad you pointed that out. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, So it's difficult to kind of look at a crime and say, ah, the cause of that one is. But on the other hand, not every crime has the same cause. So that's the other problem too, right? Uh, Rape probably has a different cause than burglary, for example, right? Or fraud maybe has a different cause than automobile theft, Writing bad checks. Ooh, that might cross all kinds of... Uh, <laughs> I, I, when I was in uh, going to graduate school, uh, my uh, VA check didn't come in maybe right on time. Oh, I hate to tell this on radio here, but I think the statute of limitations has uh, already passed. But, <laughs> you know, I, I needed to eat on Friday, so my check didn't come in. Couldn't go to the grocery store, right? So... On Friday, I could write a check to the grocery store. This is when people wrote checks. Some of your younger people have no idea what a check is. Anyway, there was the float where that check would not actually, they wouldn't even take it to the bank until Monday morning if you got there late enough on Friday, (laughs) which I knew. 
And then it took a couple of days. So it might be Wednesday or Thursday of the following week. Well, okay. My check didn't come in on Friday. Maybe it was Saturday, Monday for sure. Deposit covered. So did I ever have any overdrafts? No, not really, because I, I covered it right before the check actually hit the bank. Yeah. All right. So nowadays we don't necessarily have that option for most people. But doggone it, there, there is an economic quality to so – I mentioned that, so much crime mm-hmm. – that we should probably think about that income gap as one reason. Why can't you have – Nikes. Why can't you have an espresso machine? Why can't you have better coffee? So I don't know if if that, um, well, you know, you'd say, well, I wouldn't do it because, right? And there are lots of people, lots of students who would say, well, I don't do it because. I'm a good person and I just know better and I respect the law and on and on and on. All right. How many of you people come from Mountain View? Nobody. Nobody raises their hand, right? Um, wow. Hmm. They're all middle-class Alaska students here. Even the ones who say they're poor, well, they're not that poor. Come Mm -hmm. on. Uh, I was a lot poorer than that, (laughs) as it turns out. So, economic. And they're insulated. Oh, absolutely. If if they get hungry, they'll go back to their parents' house and have a Sunday dinner or something, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But there are other crimes. Um, assaults, alcohol-related I mentioned rapes, um, alcohol-related in many ways. Um, But violent crime is also tending up, and that becomes uh, armed robberies, for example. It's a violent crime. Mm -hmm. But it's a violent crime that has an economic quality to it, right? If if I pull out a gun, you're going to give me your money. And if I just say, give me your money, you may not, right? Mm -hmm. So the gun increases the chances of me having a successful economic exchange here, right? And, and I, I can't let this end without saying, boy, in Alaska, you can carry a gun any place, anywhere, anytime, anybody. You want a gun, just go down to Fred Myers and get a gun. I mean, you know, we don't, you know, we're becoming just awash in guns. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine that that's going to portend good here in the future. And is that the reason why some of this violent crime is going up? Um, murders don't tend to be going up dramatically because they do fluctuate quite a bit. But, you know, I, I think some of my uh, friends who love to say, well, I, uh, I have friends who carry guns, by the way. Well, if everybody carried a gun, then everybody would be civil and nobody would commit any crime because they were afraid, da 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 you get a gun, you can take on the world, right? And but that's the problem. The other, the the, the criminal feels the same way, you know, about that. So I'm I'm kind of uh, at a loss about why we just think that having more and more guns will make us more and more safer. When I there is not a shred of evidence to back that up. Oh, there's an anecdotes here of a, a town in Georgia maybe that tried it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't have crime to begin with, so kind of like having elephants in your town. Hey, look, we don't have any. Well, elephants had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So. <laughs> you know, um, I guess looking at crime in this city, what is the effect of people who believe they live in a dangerous city? You know, they're not going to 
be inclined to do things in the city to contribute to its growth. So if, if they're doing less stuff because they're scared of going out, what is the effect of that? Well, that's a common uh, concern in other places where as the fear of crime goes up, the less outdoor activities, the less restaurants, you know, et cetera. But I don't know that that's occurring in Alaska uh, because we get cabin fever. We don't care. We'll grab our gun and go to the restaurant, you know. We'll go to the movies. We'll go out and do things, right? So you just can't stay inside. Like, mm-hmm. But I think the broader question is uh, contributing to society if you think crime is going up. And I recall back in the – oh, it was in the mid-'80s. There was a – I was testifying – in front of the legislature, and they were uh, kind of continually off and on, we debate the death penalty, right? So I went down and gave my two cents worth about the death penalty, which, by the way, I say um, has no relevance at all to crime. It just, obviously, the person who's dead doesn't do any more crime. But, you know, what are you going to start doing? Doing a thousand people a year? You know, that is, that's not going to happen. But there was this uh, older lady who testified right before me. And she said, in 1975, when I was here, you could leave your doors open and, you know, you could walk around and whatever. But now, this is 10 years later or so, now you see strange people walking through your neighborhood. You've got to lock your door now because of these strange people walking through there. And on and on, right? And, And then I got up afterwards and I tried to point out very nicely that, the violent rate of crime in 1975 was a hell of a lot higher than it was in 1985, right? She should have been locking her doors then and leaving them open now, and she would have been better off. I didn't say that part, but, you know, the perception was, well, up until that time, you know, crime was relatively uh, low, and there wasn't 24-7 news coverage of every crime that goes on in the United States. Uh, And so you're you're not as uh, bombarded, I guess, with crime data, crime statistics. And now, my God, there are the community nixels. There's my neighborhoods and on and on and on. And I'm not trying to suggest that's bad. But if if you got one of these, and I had one for a bit, and I said, "I, I don't care. I mean, people have been roaming around neighborhoods for thousands of years probably, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, you just can't be listening and watching and, and, and to all the crap that goes on. It becomes too overwhelming. You, you, you see boogeymen behind every bush at some point. Right? Yeah. So. so in your career, you've spent a lot of time looking at why Alaskans commit crime. Have you drawn any conclusions or had any realizations about the character of Alaskans? Character of Alaskans, I think, are pretty similar to the characters of lots of other people, uh, with the end of the rotors as being an exception here, right? We all know about the end of the rotors who seem to have that, well, if I want to do it, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, where I want to do it, whatever, whatever, and anything you say is government overreach, you know, that kind of problem, right? And I think that there's a not a, a vast majority, but a significant percentage of people who are vocal about that kind of personal freedom. I think that's a unique view of personal freedom in the rest of the world, but maybe that's why you moved here, right? You get free money and you can live at the end of the road. 
and do what you want, when you want, how you want, if you want. And if you've got a D9 Caterpillar tractor, you can build roads, you can build bridges, you can build just, you want to road through a salmon stream? Well, you got a D9 cat can just go right ahead and just bulldoze it right on through because it's your property, your stream, your whatever. And anybody who wants to, that's government overreach. I, I'm just so tired of hearing that. That's pathetic. Mm -hmm. But I think my students who aren't into the rotors by any stretch of the imagination are just as the same as students any other state might be. So, because we're all mostly from other other places, and I wish we had more Alaska natives in our universities, because um, they have a more communal quality to their discussions about crime. Don't necessarily see beating people about the head and shoulders as a solution to community issues. So. That's a nice thing to hear. But other places, other states, other schools, I, I think the the idea of free will, which I've not mentioned up to this point here at the very end, uh, if, we, if you still believe in every crime is just a simple free will choice of that person, and all you got to do is beat the crap out of them, and that'll change their mind quick, right? Well, if... If that's all it took, we wouldn't have had crime for the last thousand years. So we used to brand people, chop people, hang people for every little crime. My God, was the death penalty for all the crime in the world. And we still had crime. My goodness, crime two, three, four hundred years ago probably was worse. We don't have the data, right, to back that up, but probably worse than it is today. I could leave my door open. And you could leave your door open in those days too, right? <laughs> so I think we get uh, enamored with the idea of free will and, and see that as the only solution because it's so simplistic to say, well, they just wanted to do it. Well, I guess in some ways, yeah, but that's really painting wanted into really a broad brush that uh, free will probably isn't the explanation for, right? Because it, it, your your mind and your brain does all kinds of things to you, and you might do things based on your brain, and we all might know your brain is screwed up in some ways, right? And if we could fix that or not let it happen in the first place, you wouldn't be thinking those things. But if we know that your brain is a certain quality and have these problems, and my dissertation was on impulsive criminals, by the way, and their brains are different, than normal criminals, which most criminals are normal, as it turns out. But if we know that their brains are different, then we can potentially impact that brain and they're no longer doing the kinds of things we don't want them to do, but we don't look at that. We don't ask those questions. So we, we think, well, all you gotta do is just beat them about the head and shoulders and problem solved. Yeah. Well, this, is, this has been great. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. Well, thank you for having me, Cody. I appreciate the opportunity to come and really a lot, most of what I just said was a lot of opinion, obviously. Uh, and I wish uh, readers and listeners would probably certainly have their own opinions and I, I don't want to dismiss that. But if I could leave them with something, I would say, I, I think they ought to advocate for better and better and better data collection at least to match what we do with fish, right? That's all I'm asking for here. Let's have the same data interest and quality and people that, that analyze our fish coming up a stream. Let's do the same thing with, with crime. And, and like 
we understand when the, the salmon go out to uh, the ocean, maybe we kind of lose track of them for a bit, right? Well, we lose track of them until they come in through the jail door. So boom, you know, once they're on the hook, well, then we kind of ask questions. Well, that's silly. You need to ask a lot of questions. We know all about when salmon uh, fry and where they uh, hatch and all of that whole life cycle and all that kind of stuff, right? What do we know about the life cycle of a criminal? None. Lost Anchorage is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music is by Michelle McLaughlin. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska for supporting this podcast at the company man level. 